Good afternoon. I'm Paul Nogloz. I'm the executive producer of Crisonia. I'm going to share a brief introduction, just setting up today's conversation. I'm then going to introduce our guest speakers. And just so I don't forget, this is meant to be highly interactive. We encourage you to come through the Q&A button with questions, and we will get to as many of the questions as we can. I'm going to just, uh, I'm going to just share with you now an intro to set things up. Agriculture right now is quickly evolving to focus more on data collection and analysis at every step of the supply chain, from growing to packing, selling, and shipping. There's a number of data points out there indicating that this trend won't be slowing down anytime soon. From farmers leveraging IoT devices to enhance their precision agricultural practices to distributors leveraging data to reduce waste and improve food safety. There is a lot that data can tell us about our food every step of the way. As consumers become more interested in food traceability and the origin story behind the food they buy, there will be greater, incentive, greater incentives to make this information more available at the point of purchase as well. So today's Crisonia conversation, feedback on food, how data is enabling the evolution of the food system, will focus on the technology and data being collected across our food ecosystems and how that information is used today, as well as where the industry is headed as emerging technologies are adapted and it becomes easier to collect, analyze and distribute this information every step of the way. Finally, we will discuss how better feedback on food will ultimately impact the consumer. Joining us this morning, we have Matthew Colvin, Director of Logistics at Treetop, we also have Rob Donosky, our friend who's done a number of these, who's partner and food agribusiness leader at EY. Dan Maycock, principal data engineering and co-founder of Loftus Labs. And Eric Weaver, CEO of Transparent Path. So to uh, jump into today's conversation, let's start out with data creation. We'll start out broadly and then we will drill down. I assume there's more data that can be collected off the farm than ever before. Is this a correct assumption? I think there's lots of information being generated today in farming, as there have been for the last, you know, thousands of years. You think back to the Farmer's Almanac, for example, being one of the oldest forms of data analysis, specifically about weather. And those technologies have only improved with IoT, a lot of precision ag type technologies. So it's not necessarily a shortage of data. It's more of all the different sources of data that are being created, how much of that's impactful to the farm itself. Um, so there's certainly a lot of great stuff being created today. We're seeing it come across our desk around the ag tech solutions focused on farming and think that it's gonna continue to proliferate here um, as the space you know, heats up uh, over the coming years. Um, is it, describe what type of data that you think holds the most promise. I was gonna ask, is, is a lot of this data new? Obviously the data has always been there. I guess it's our ability to, to retrieve it. And then we'll get into interpretation, but I'm, uh, what do you think holds the most promise in terms of the data coming off of the farm? What do you think is the most useful? Yeah, I, I just quick perspective, Paul. I mean, I think the, the, if you look at the value chain of food, it's, it's changing dramatically right now, right? And so 
the last couple of decades, it's been producer led. Let's, you know, let's celebrate record yields every year and we should continue to do that. But I think a lot of the data we're collecting was about improving the performance of the farm, which will continue. I think now with the consumer centric, consumer led value chain, the question at, at, at hand is, are we collecting the right data that actually drives value through the value chain all the way down to the consumer? So I think there's lots of opportunity to collect a, you know, a different set of data that'll get monetized along the way and ultimately end up in the, in the consumer's choice as they uh, sit at, you know, whether it's a restaurant or a, or a grocery store to make their, their selection. Yeah, Paul, I think that, uh, that Rob really hit the nail on the head there. The, the value that's going to be the most valuable is the, the data that you can monetize uh, and the, the data that, uh, that actually drives a, a new business model or allows you to better adhere to the needs of the customer. Uh, for example, in the Apple space, uh, they've gotten very, very good uh, at producing data uh, and insight around the quality of the fruit, both from an internal and external perspective. Uh, they've got very advanced vision systems that will take 300 pictures of an apple within uh, a fraction of a second um, and then use that to uh, individualize each apple and the market that that apple's destined to. Uh, the more that we can find ways to, uh, to monetize and enhance the decision of individual pieces of fruit, the, the better off that we're going to see, that we're going to be. And I think too, as, as you start to see more in the last mile, uh, a lot of demand for different kinds of data from either retailers, consumers, regulatory issues, that's going to push that down to the growers level. And it's going to prompt them if they aren't already doing it to collect data in new ways, because the data is either regulated, at which point you're required to capture it, which point it's about improving the data collection, or it's going to be new use cases that come up um, being mandated by the retailer that's going to push it down to the packers and growers as well. So you can see a lot of that change either focused around yield maximization, uh, the growers themselves adopting those practices, but also see a lot more requirements coming further upstream um, in terms of what type of data gets collected and how it gets used. And one thing I'd add to that too is it's, it's far more than data collection. We see data being collected all over the place. We see our devices uh, in trucks, in the field, et cetera. But there's often not an infrastructure uh, beneath it to tie them all together, to get that data to the consumer in some form or fashion. Uh, there are often point solutions that are, are disconnected. So I think that's, a, that's an infrastructure issue that we have to address. So for example, you know, uh, producers will toss a, a temp tail in the back of a truck and uh, record the temperature and humidity, but often it just stays here. It doesn't go anywhere. So how do we know what really happened if the trucker doesn't pull this off the truck and provide that data to someone else? Are there, are there examples that we can point to today how access to more data has resulted in different action and higher yields? Or is, it, is there not really that connection? I mean, you know, anyway, I thought Rob might have, a, might have an idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're seeing, you know, some, um, you know, I'd say fits and starts, right? There, you know, depends on the application. There's so many variables right now that you have to consider that, you know, you say, you know, if we're able to do, um, you know, variable rate spraying as an example, I mean, does that improve the yield? Maybe does it improve the cost structure? Absolutely, you know, because you're not, you're not doing broad spraying across the entire field. so. You're able to improve the margin on that, on that individual farm. 
I mean, th there still continues to be a, a lot of data collected. I think the, the other panels have said it really well. I mean, it's not necessarily collecting more data. It's, it, you know, it's what are we doing with it? It's the, it's the age old story we've heard for a while is, you know, what, what kind of insights are we drawing from it? What kind of actions are we drawing from it? You know, I, I think it's healthy to look outside the industry, you know, and what have others in other industries done with data? What are other, other industries doing with data right now? And, you know, apply that to not just farming, but all the way through the value chain. And, you know, where, again, I still go back to, you know, where, where are you going to get your, you know, your, uh, your payment for the, for the investment you're making? That continues to be a, you know, core to, to, the, uh, to the investment strategy. I think there's a lot of indirect benefit there, too. If I am using data to track labor more effectively, using resources and inputs more effectively, if I have a more efficient farm and I'm more profitable, I can invest more in agronomists. I can keep my business open. It could be a privately held farm when I focus more on the quality of the product because I can afford to do that. So the indirect benefit of having data analytics improving yield is not necessarily data directly tied to yield in some cases. It's about making the overall business healthier, which allows me to then invest in things that I know are going to drive better yield. Uh, it could be investment in products, different kinds of inputs, soil science, all things that I can afford to do because my margins are better, right? So it isn't necessarily about, well, data directly tied to yield, but more importantly, kind of use data to make a healthier business. And by doing that, invest more of the things that will improve yield. And I think, so I think a lot of what, I'm sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, I think a lot of what we're talking about kind of breaks down into two camps. Uh, as you look at how you use data, uh, there's two sides of that margin equation. You've got the cost component, but you've also got a revenue side. Uh, these businesses, especially farming and all the inputs that, that go into this, that tie into weather and cultural components and labor and all these things, these are very complex systems. So it, you can very easily tie uh, data, database decision-making to a cost component and cost mitigation, but it, it becomes much more difficult to tie that to a true revenue component. You know, and that's where a lot of the, the high level, the step change growth is gonna come from uh, and the adoption is gonna come from when you can start to tie not just uh, cost mitigation activities to these decision points, but uh, clearly linking uh, data to your to your revenue growth as well. Um, one thing, and you know, just while we're on that data collection, and we'll move on um, from here. But I know for you know, it seems that we we go through phases or fads, and you know, having put on the Forbes Ag Tech Summit a number of years, you know, one year it seemed like it was all about drones. And then one year it was all about infield sensors. And then the next year, you know, and it seems like these things come in and out of fashion. Um, today, do we feel that the investments being made in data collection, are they, are they more on the mark uh, or is there still a kind of a mentality of, well, let, let's build it and they will come. And I think, I think too often it's been, they haven't come. Um, but anyway, I just, are, are the data collection efforts that are being funded? And again, whether those are sensors or drones or, or what have you, are they, are they closer to what's actually needed or is there still a disconnect? Well, I think in the, the latest implementation of what we're seeing with a lot of 
ag tech implementations is no one's quite sure the specific formula around where data is going to be most impactful to a commodity. So you see a divergence of a lot of different people funding a lot of different kinds of ag tech companies, and not all of them are going to be useful. But until you get to the point where there's so much divergence, then you see it come in and converge on the three or four most useful ways to do that. But this is only the latest iteration of data collection because data and farming has been around um, since the beginning of time. This new wave is around big data, about data warehousing, about cloud computing, all things that are being used in other verticals now being applied to agriculture and saying, we have all these tools available to us in places like manufacturing and logistics. How much of that translates into apples or hops or wheat or corn? Um, and once there's a clear recipe around, here's the five or six different ways which is most useful, I think everyone converges on those specific technologies and really gets behind it. Then other companies go out of business, they buy each other up. Uh, and then it's kind of a set recipe until the next wave of innovation and technology comes along. Uh, that'll be the next kind of chapter around how technology and data get used in farming. I, I think I'd add, Paul, there's a there's definitely a shiny object uh, magpie syndrome going on with, with tech. Uh, you know, I, we got our start three years ago in the blockchain for food, kind of awkward teenage years. And, uh, it, you know, blockchain is the object. It, what we found is that it it's really a number of different technologies that are all slowly gaining acceptance that are going to be impactful in getting this data, connecting it, uh, and, and utilizing it in operations. I think the other thing I would add, too, is that as tech people, we've done a terrible job at making this relevant and real for the, for the customer. Um, we, we, we know what we think is exciting about it, but we're not tying it back often to the KPIs that the producer has or the processor. We're not making it, uh, how do they get their bonus? Is this something that's gonna get them their bonus? That's really the thing that matters to them. So um, I think that that's an area where we definitely need improvement. Yeah, I think Paul, was, you know, the, um, the, oh, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, sorry, I was just gonna say, Paul, I mean, I think, you know, technology terms seem to come and go really fast, right? I mean, you know, it's 3G, 5G, it's, you know, IOT, it's blockchain, it's quantum, it's whatever, you know, I mean, kind of, I go back to that, that, that god awful term we had called Y2K, right? So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown around. I think that feels trendy, you know, and it feels faddish if you're a if you're a business buyer. You know, I think at the end of the day, the business question is, you know, what's not trendy? And I think what's not trendy going forward is responsiveness to consumer desires. You know, what, what do consumers want? You know, and, and how do you stay agile and flexible when a consumer changes their mind? Because on one end of the value chain, you've got, you know, row crops that are, that are essentially moving at a really slow pace. It's a, it's a crop a year. Then on the other end of the value chain, you have consumers that are spinning really, really fast. And they're changing, you know, every hour, week, day, month, you know. I mean, so how, does, how do you stay, you know, agile and give them the data they want when, when their minds are changing so quickly? I think that, that consumer preference is not a fad. You know, that consumer-driven value chain is, is absolutely a driving force, not a trend or a fad at this stage. That's what I think a lot of growers are looking to say, you know, when it's a direct to, there's not a whole lot of direct to consumer and commercial agriculture. As those consumer trends are changing, it's not necessarily a marketing strategy, but the marketing strategy and the consumer trends and the retail buying predates two or three years out what the growers end up having to pivot to and saying, well, apples aren't sexy anymore because there's too much fructose and millennials don't like fructose anymore. Now it's all about blueberries. Well, that's a three to four year investment to grow blueberries. 
doesn't have blueberries or a superfood until blueberries get saturated. Now there's a new variety of apple and how do we pivot there? So I feel like there needs to be a lot more agility inside of the supply chain. So as these trends are hitting on the consumer side, growers know two or three years out what's the right investments to make to not rush all in and saturate the market with whatever that crop or commodity is, but knowing how that data impacts them and how best to respond to it. And I think that's still somewhat lacking um, in specialty crops right now. We did a study in 2020 with the consumer to find out, you know, like, okay, if you had more data about the food you purchased, if you knew where it came from, if you knew how it got to you, if you knew what happened to it along the way, was it recalled, was it compliant, et cetera, would you pay more? And we found that 55% of consumers would pay up to 10% more for transparent food, if you will, uh, food with data that's attached to it. So, you know, we're talking about these, these tech trends like blockchain, et cetera, but there's really the sort of mega trend uh, that uh, was best uh, demonstrated in the, an episode of Portlandia, where they wanted to know the history of the chicken, uh, that consumers really do want that kind of information. Uh, they really do uh, are, are willing to pay more to have that from a sheer trust perspective. They're, if they're going to feed their families, uh, they want to make sure that what they're, they're feeding their families is healthy and safe. Um, it was Eric, interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. Well, that's a really interesting point, a really interesting data point there that call it half of consumers would be willing to pay up to 10% more for whatever it is that they're buying for that transparency. But as you divide that across all the different selling partners involved from the retailer to the, uh, you know, to the middlemen, uh, to the processors, all the way back to the farmer, is that the, your opinion? Do you think that's enough of a financial incentive to just based off of what a consumer is willing to pay now to incent farmers and agriculture to uh, to take on this transparent uh, this investment in uh, in enough data to to provide that value to a consumer? It's a good point, Matt, and I I can't answer that question. I just know it's a it's a uh, a driving force that we're seeing at least in what consumers want now. Uh, operationalizing that across the value chain is a whole different story. There's costs involved and uh, there's there's realities involved in, in making that happen. But I think as all of these point solutions start to blossom in various aspects of the production and the distribution chain, um, and as they become more interconnected, we're, we're getting closer to that uh, ability to provide that data. I think those point solutions will not come about because the consumer is willing to pay more or wants more information, but just in the, the maturation of the technology. Let's talk a little bit more about the food value chain. Um, Rob, you outlined last week on our prep call, I thought it was pretty interesting, but um, could you talk to us a little bit more about the farm and the factory and the consumer and just how you look at those? And are they, are they, are they freestanding silos or are they starting to talk to each other as well? Like is the food value chain, is there, is there integration across it or is it still pretty much I'm going to focus on what's good for my factory. I'm going to focus on what's good for my farm. And then you bring in the consumer. Anyway, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about how you approach it and how you look at it? And I think there's a couple things to think about, right? So first off, not all consumers are alike, right? So we've got, and we have, and we'll continue to segment, you know, the, the customer segments you want to serve. But, you know, if you look at just two segments as, as an example, if you look at the um, Gen Xers and boomers versus the Gen Zs, millennials, just separate those two for a second, right? Their attitudes towards food are massively different, you know, and, 
you know, boomers and extras have been, you know, conditioned, trained that, you know what, food is a necessity. Um, let's, let's get it as cheap as we can. Um, you know, but if you want to show status, if you really want to you know, show that you've made it in the world, you know, look at my car and look at my house, you know, now contrast that with the millennials and Gen Z's. Millennials and Gen Z's look at transportation houses, needs-based decisions. You know, I need to get from one side of town to the other. Let me take an UberX. No one, none of my friends care what kind of Uber car I get out of. I don't get, you know, status points for getting out of a Mercedes versus, uh, you know, a, a, a lower end car, right? But when I show up on Monday and talk to my friends like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? When it comes to food, you know what? I, I shopped at Whole Foods is a different story than if I shopped at a, a discount grocer. Or if I went to a, you know, a uh, fast casual chain with some friends, that's different than if I went to a restaurant, it takes a month to get into. So food becomes status in those generations. And so I think you, you start to have a very different population and a relationship with food. But at the same time, if you look at corporations, food manufacturers, bed manufacturers, what they cannot do is create a expensive food system and a cheap food system. You know, and we can't do that at this, you know, while we're satisfying these two segments as well. So, you know, because that flies in the face of the ESG um, algorithm that is on everyone's plate right now. And if you're, if you're not proving that ESG um, space out, you know, it's, it's great to take care of the planet, but you don't take care of the social people that need food. You, you, you've compromised your ESG position. So I think you've got a, a number of kind of levers that have to be pulled really strategically as you, uh, as you define your role in that future food system. And um, I know we're going down some different paths, but this is interesting. You know, you talked about ESG. Do you think that this is going to propel a, a lot of the a lot of the data that is collected and obviously the way it's used. And I mean, we, we can even get into a conversation. You know, I, I've been trying to, I've been trying unsuccessfully to get a real grip on, on carbon and on carbon credits and what that's gonna mean to the supply chain. But anyway, I mean, do you feel, I don't know, five, seven years ago when I was helping create Forbes Impact, I felt like a lot of it was window dressing and people were like, hey, we've got these initiatives and it even came up on our digital forum that some of the things that have been announced and some of the targets, like there's no way they could, they could reach those targets, you know, whether it's a FedEx or whether it's a, a United Airlines or whoever it is, you know, that you put out these targets. So anyway, I'm just, I'm interested in how data collection, do you think that's going to be a big impact on what data is collected, how it's interpreted, how it's used? I think it comes down to on the growing side, what's going to drive the best return for my product. So if I can justify technology that's not just going to improve the yield, but the quality of my product, you know, that's going to be a worthwhile expense because it has a payback period of 12 months within a harvest cycle. If it takes me 20 or 30 years to test technology out in order to see if it's viable enough to improve that, or even five to seven years, I'm going to do it in five acres before I go to, you know, 5,000 acres in order to scale that technology. And it's a bigger issue on can the ag tech company survive long enough to prove the use case over a lot of five acre trials versus going all in with a farm. And the second piece of that is, you know, there is a lot of fads and trends out there that farmers are still somewhat nervous about. You talk about carbon marketplaces, um, you know, it's the case right now, there's not enough regulation where if I have a 3000 acre hop farm, 
and I'm selling carbon credits for my farm, which could be carbon neutral, I'm going to ignore the fact that my kiln that dries out those hops might be burning 500,000 gallons of propane every year because it's not necessarily mandated within Washington state. I have to report every single way in which I use fuel, simply focusing on my farming and production. So I could have a very askew metric, depending on what part you're looking at. Um, and it's because of things like that, that's still too new that a, a farm's not necessarily gonna go all in and literally bet the farm on some of these technologies till they've either made it through these five acre trials to prove yes, this in fact does benefit my crop, does produce higher quality, higher quality, uh, or better yields, a combination of the two, which makes me more money at the end of the day. Um, but given a lot of these farms are, you know, 80 to 100 years old in the fourth generation, it's a high bar to be able to say, I can uh, introduce a technology to a fourth generation farm where the farmers themselves aren't already figuring out the land in which they've literally, you know, grown up and farmed for the last several years. Uh, it's somewhat arrogant to come in as an ag tech guy, three or four years experience and say, I've figured out how you can you know, upend your farming practices. That being said, there is a lot of opportunity to be able to enhance decision-making, be able to create better visibility, augment decisions around farming, and just give farmers more information that could drive decisions they're already planning to make. And those are the types of things I think aren't um, window dressing or snake oil, um, but it's very hard to get to those interesting, going from interesting business value to impact it's interesting and I create a war room and visualizations and a whole lot of data and charts, create a lot of cool drone imagery, use robots and lasers and everything else, build science projects, a lot of cool, interesting stuff I could build, but impact, real impact, something that's going to actually hit the bottom line for a farmer. Uh, that's a lot harder to get at. And I think we're still trying to weave our way through what are those specific solutions that are going to benefit farmers in a way that drives an impact to yield um, and quality in a way that's measurable. One thing I'd add is uh, related to what Rod, uh, Rob said, which was, um, you know, the generational aspect of this. Um, uh, we've, we're seeing, I think, I don't remember which uh, uh, consulting firm published this data, but uh, as of 2019, 51% of consumers were interested in more than just price, taste, and convenience. Um, so that's that Gen X uh, versus Gen Y and, and millennial uh, trend happening. And uh, you know, they're interested in, in the, knowing if you're an ethical, if you're ethically sourcing or if you're sustainably farming, um, they want to know what, what uh, your ESG impacts are. And so now that the majority of consumers want that information, I, I think that's going to make ESG uh, less of window dressing than it used to be, Paul. And we used to talk about CSR back in the day. And before that, it was uh, just purely sustainability. This has been a conversation that's been going on for quite some time, but our kids are forcing uh, a, a change in the path. You know, I Coming think one, one on of the... Go, go ahead, Matt. Rob. I was just going to say, uh, one of the trends that we're seeing uh, on the producer-supplier space is some of the larger retailers are starting to tie ESG off to resiliency within the supply chain. Um, we don't know exactly uh, how serious they are about it, but we're definitely seeing the questionnaires around uh, what products are you supplying us? How many lines are they produced on? What's your uh, contingency planning in the event you have a labor outage? Uh, you have a strike, you have a natural disaster, something like that. So, you know, we're starting to see this idea of resiliency kind of be lumped into this, this ESG mindset. Um, and the real question in my mind is, 
you know, I don't know how heavily that weighs into a true pricing decision or, or a true purchase uh, intent decision. And I think only time will tell, but it's definitely a trend that we are seeing start to emerge. Yeah, Matt, I was very similar spot that you were right. So, I mean, I think this is similar back in the days of like data warehousing and we could, you know, we could run all kinds of reports and somebody would say, hey, can you run me this report? Or, you know, I, I need this information. We used to challenge that a lot and we would ask the question, what decision are you going to make when you have this information? You know, what's the impact on your decision? And a lot of times if you couldn't answer that, then it's just it's just informational and kind of notational. But, you know, the, now the question is, if you're going to collect data, you know, somewhere along the value chain, what decision are you looking to influence? And we did, a, we've done, I think we're up to eight or nine versions of our future consumer index and 74% of consumers say they'll make a buying decision based on the company's sustainability and the product sustainability and they're willing to pay a premium for it. Okay, that's a decision. How do I influence that now as, as I go through this? So if you think about this simple fact, 99% of consumer choices inside a grocery store, 99% are made at the shelf. You don't walk into the store, you know, knowing exactly what you're gonna buy. If anyone, if anyone's like me, our, you know, our shopping list says peanut butter. It doesn't say, here's the brand, here's the size, here's crunchy, creamy, it says peanut butter. So 99% of those choices are made at the shelf. So now what data do I need to collect to influence that decision that happens 99% of the time? I think that's the fundamental question you ask when you think about what data do you, do you really wanna start collecting? Dan, did you have something to add or? I think uh, with, with that, if you're looking at creamy peanut butter versus chunky peanut butter, and that's the retail trend, as I was mentioning earlier, how does that tie back to the peanut farmer? Because if you go to a peanut farmer and saying, this type of analysis is going to provide you this kind of benefit to know what to grow and how to grow it in order to meet that trend, and you're going to drive, you know, X percent more uh, demand for this particular variety of peanut versus this variety of peanut, because everyone wants extra chunky. That's where I think you have a five-tiered system from the retail so consumer, retailer, distributor, packer, grower. Um, and that isn't necessarily aligned where a grower knows those trends, how it impacts them, what variety to do until perhaps it's too late to respond and pivot in a way that's going to be most meaningful on the consumer side. And But if you produce more of that information and build the supply chain, which the grower is informed of those things and knowing how to act on that. So two or three years, you know, into the crop, they can produce uh, extra chunky peanut varieties versus peanut varieties that are better for smooth peanut butter. You know, that's where the data starts to really make sense. Um, is there, do you consider the application of data farthest along in any particular segment? If you, is it the farm? Is it the factory? Is it the consumer? I mean, can you point to one and say, wow, well, they really seem to get it or they really don't seem to get it. Um, is there any way to do that with those, with those three? I think, um, you know, when I look at what data is most um, meaningful, it's going to be anything around regulations. Nobody wants to get fined, so food safety is going to be a big deal. Uh, traceability as it relates to supply chain because it's mandated, I track that. Certain commodity types like cannabis are incredibly uh, data rich because that's what the state of Washington requires of that particular commodity. So it starts on the regulatory side, anything around labor. 
you know, for reporting purposes is going to be important, um, but also where the greatest pain point is. So we're seeing a lot of interest in labor from the fact that Washington state no longer has an overtime exemption for agricultural employees or uh, employers. So, you know, that's become a much bigger deal because it's, it's the biggest area of cost. It's the biggest area of um, uncertainty around how to pivot my business to respond to that. You know, we're going to see water become a bigger and bigger deal as, as climate change continues to be a thing. Um, but it's going to be the most pressing areas which drives the greatest costs or is the greatest pain if I'm not tracking and sourcing that. And um, that's going to be purely a function of business need. So let's let's move into a conversation um, and let's let's talk about incentivization, um, because I think that's that's where you're headed with this. So Dan is saying, you know, regulatory is probably going to be the, the biggest prod or prompt. Um, is it true that that you know many farmers and factories have the data, but don't really have any idea what to do with it at this point? And is that maybe because a lack of incentive? And we can get into we can get into the whole conversation about you know farmers' unwillingness to share data. And, you know, if, there, if there's not an incentive, maybe that's behind the unwillingness to share data. Anyway, I just, I, I'd like to get into, you know, talking, I, I guess the first question is, is it true, you know, that, that, that farmers and factories have plenty of data? It's just that they, they either don't know what to do with it, or there's not a financial, clear financial incentive at this point to share it or to, to do it? You know, Paul, so one of the things that I've seen uh, across my career is that, and I completely agree with Dan, in many cases, the regulatory aspect is the catalyst for changing operations, for uh, collecting additional data sets because of the reporting requirements. What you see, however, oftentimes, and this kind of leads more specifically into your question, is how is that data used across the organization? You know, most times when you have regulatory data, uh, it gets captured, it gets dropped into a, uh, a singular database for a specific point of use, and it never really sees the light of day. I cannot tell you how many times across my career, you know, we've made incredible operational changes just because we finally got access to information that had been collected for a significant amount of time. And we found new use cases for that data, new ways to tie uh, existing data sets to a, to a frontline employee, to a frontline employee's uh, decision matrix. Um, so even in the manufacturing environment, I would probably say, especially in the manufacturing environment, which is uh, heavily regulated from an OSHA standpoint, heavy, heavily regulated from a food safety standpoint, you know, that is some of our, our lowest hanging fruit is uh, getting granular levels of data and tying it back to uh, frontline employees' decision-making. Um, there is a lot of opportunity there, um, but, you know, to say that uh, just harnessing the data that, uh, that we already have gets us where we want to go, I, I think that's a bridge too far. Yeah, I'd say, Paul, I think in general, um, I, I think we're going to continue to see regulations, right? I mean, I think that's just part and parcel to the industry. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, the, the responsiveness, again, sorry to sound like a broken record, but responsiveness to the consumer and trying to find the areas of premium value that they'll drive, I think changes the narrative. Today, 
I think you're in those three tranches you mentioned, farm, you know, factory and consumer, there's a lot of rich data that sits in the consumer. I mean, you know, we, we all kind of got uh, incented to do that as consumers to share our data by, you know, the, um, the loyalty cards, right? So let me swipe my loyalty card. That'll, you know, prompt coupons to come to my house. So I can save money on my food. But in turn, what ended up happening is there was massive amounts of data collection on what I was buying, you know, and, you know, companies like IRI, Nielsen, you know, aggregated that data, they sell it back to food and beverage manufacturers so they can make, you know, really informed decisions on product development and placement and pricing and lots of things, right? So, um, so that's pretty interesting on the consumer side. We don't have that, that kind of fluidity on the farm side. You know, we don't have that aggregation. We don't have, candidly, I don't know if we have the incentive today in place to, to uh, you know, uh, inspire farmers to, to aggregate their data. Inside the factories, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty self-contained. You know, maybe it's factory to factory inside the enterprise, but you know, you're really, there's really no incentive for me to share what's going on in my factory compared to my competitors, you know? So you probably don't see aggregation necessarily in, inside that, that area. But I do think we're gonna to continue to see this, you know, this leap where consumers are more interested in what's happening on the farm and instead of just, hey, you dumped, you know, 174 bushels per acre of number two yellow corn in a bin and it got commodity traded at four bucks, in, you know, a bushel. That's pr pretty interesting to those in the trading space. But now you tell me that you put in corn that was sustainably grown over cover crops and so forth. And as a discerning buyer who values sustainability, I actually am really interested in that. And I'm willing to, you know, potentially pay the farmer to let me know when, when they do that, because that's the kind of kind of food ingredient I'm looking for. So I, I think that changes the game uh, significantly over the next decade. I think too, you'll see the concept of nutrient density become more of a talking point with consumers and people being educated that some lettuce is actually less healthy than other lettuce because of the concept of nutrient density and regenerative ag practices, the healthiness of soil. And you'll probably start to see grading or marketing terms focused on not so much organic versus conventional, which was the big trend over the last however many years. But now it's about, well, three different kinds of the same variety of lettuce. This farm practice is regenerative soil, which makes this version of lettuce or this variety healthier because of nutrient density. I actually get more value out of that. Um, but it hasn't yet caught off as a marketing term, but certainly in the next five years, see that becoming a bigger deal as soil makes its way more into the news. <clears throat> so I, um, one thing I wanted to jump on, Dan, you had brought up a little bit earlier, um, you had talked about cannabis, and do you think that this could potentially serve as a, as a template from a regulatory perspective? Is that part of it or a reporting perspective? I just, uh, I was just wondering if you could maybe dive down a little bit more on that. Yeah, if you look at something like uh, hops, each each 14-foot hop vine produces about $5 um, a year worth of value to the grower, but you have a single cannabis plant, it can produce $500 worth of value, you know, in terms of like gross revenue um, per year. So the opportunity to make more money per plant is much higher in cannabis than it is in other commodities. The other thing is because of the federal issues around it, it's highly regulated, um, and to a point, every plant actually has its own barcode. You don't see that in apples. You know, a typical apple grower has two and a half um, million trees. You're not going to see QR codes popping up across thousands of acres, but you see that in cannabis because it's required by the state. You know, it's probably will be a federal requirement at some point. 
because it's a scheduled to substance. But because of that data and because of the opportunity to maximize yield and quality, quality matters more in cannabis than it does a lot of other commodities as well. Um, you're going to see a lot more opportunity to launch ag tech innovations in places like that because you have both the incentive and the data to be able to enhance the product to put that data to work. I could put in a Freedom of Information Act request from Washington State and get every single transaction, every single lab result, every single retail purchase itemized by dollar amount for every cannabis purchase going back to 2017 when it was legalized. No other commodity provides me that level of visibility or analysis. And so if I'm launching a new ag tech company and I focus on that crop and I figure out the model, can I work my way to more commoditized crops that have less visibility and less transparency? If I prove it in cannabis, can I also prove it in apples? I don't think you'll see anything regulated as heavily as you do this crop and, and you know, pretty much shut down uh, farmers and other groups if they had to suddenly start getting that level of traceability. But because it's there already and you have that richness of data, could use that as a pilot product or an MVP to test the solution out and say, if we can make it work in cannabis, could we make it work in other commodity types? I think it provides a really unique opportunity, just the state of the industry for that commodity and where you can launch into that and prove it works there and then say, well, where can I cross pollinate in other types of commodities where less data and regulations in place? Yeah, I'd add to that that cannabis has the border issue, uh, the, the, the GPS issue, making sure that the product doesn't cross state or national borders. Uh, and so from that perspective, having that supply chain visibility data is, is critical to proving that you're compliant. Uh, we were asked to pitch a project uh, in a South American country uh, that had finally legalized importing hemp seeds. They wanted to create a sort of a legal hemp crop and industry there uh, that didn't turn into uh, marijuana. Uh, but they also were terrified that gangs would uh, intercept shipments and basically you know, create illegal drugs. So uh, in, it, as part of that pitch, um, you know, the, one of the mandates was, uh, can you prove where this product is at all times uh, without that data uh, uh, buyers <coughs> to provide uh, this product for sale? Okay. Um, I would, uh, I would encourage our, our audience, um, again, use the Q&A button if you have a question. Um, I did have one question come in, and this is from a millennial. Um, over the past decade, consumers have taken initiative in gaining access to their own personal health data. Um, and so the question is, will this interest in data transfer to consumer, will it transfer to consumer curiosity of the stats of the food they're eating? and go so far as the agricultural techniques of the farms where the food is coming from. And we touched on this before, but, and I know that you started to see, and not to jump all over the place, but I, I know you started to see food rating systems. So in other words, you can go in and on your Apple watch, you can pick something up and compare it to another product in the same category, going back to Rob's peanut butter. You know, if you got 15 different styles of peanut butter, um, I'm just interested, I mean, do we think that at some point that, you know, one, both both a driver, but that also that this is where it's gonna end up, is that it really is gonna end up with the consumer and it's gonna end up on their Apple Watch and that that is somehow gonna filter back through to, to the factory and to the farm? I think it's gonna come down to the cost benefit of implementing a system like that and what the payoff is there. I mean, it would be a huge lift for a packing house or 
a marketing desk to implement any kind of system like that, that may be interesting information and, and can spark curiosity, but is it going to drive sales and is it going to move the bottom line at all? Uh, that I think will be the, the big question. It's not so much as the technology there to add to this quantified self movement and provide that visibility. What's the cost of providing that system? And you know, if they see a 10% lift in Apple sold that have a rating system versus ones that don't, and having QR codes that allow you to attach your phone, that's going to drive the, you know, the onus to put that kind of system in place. But it's just simply nice to have information, then there's not necessarily that cost benefit of doing it. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting if you just reflect back a little bit, right? I mean, we, we all remember the food pyramid, the food pyramid is still, still alive and well today, right? Um, it, you know, it, it's for the average, right? This is what the average consumer should consume, you know, and, and people would really wait for that new pyramid to come out that said, you know what, you should have, now you should have four servings of, of veggies instead of three, or now you should have more, you know, breads than whatever cereals and so forth. And that that started to drive some, you know, projected demand. I, I would contend that we don't need a food pyramid anymore. I don't think it's relevant. And, you know, the, the, uh, the USDA and others would probably say, hey, wait, that's my, my business. But, you know, average is not something we need right now. We, we can get down to personal, personalized nutrition and health. Foods you know, interact in our bodies differently depending upon who we are, right? Um, we just have genetic makeups that we now, you know, can track through the the 23 and me's of the world. So personalized diet, you know, it depends on how foods interact with you. It depends on your goals and your objectives. So I, I think that, you know, uh, we, we need to understand what consumers want and then try to figure out how to get it to them as fast as possible. You know, we're all consumers. Let's admit it. We're all a fickle bunch, you know? So today I'm a keto diet, you know, next month I'm on the Mediterranean and then the next month I give up all and all I, all I want are, you know, you know, pies and cakes, you know, so how do I, uh, how do I respond to that and, and, um, and really, you know, remain agile as, as uh, all these demands change. And I think too, the interesting point to build on what Rob said, as I read an article today that the word diet is going away from soda and it's now zero sugar. And it's the reason millennials and Gen Z's don't want to be on diets anymore. And the word is diet association over the 80s and 90s is now giving way to zero sugar is a different connotation, which doesn't really impact at all uh, the people producing sugar, how that overworks there so much as it impacts the branding. So there's going to be some things that only exist in the retail space that don't really affect the rest of the value chain and calling something diet or zero sugar, I think is one of those examples. And do you think people so are taking, are people, oh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. I was just going to ask, what I'm hearing is that, you know, we're expecting a certain amount of churn in the marketing space. Uh, call it diet, call it zero sugar, call it whatever you want. You know, that doesn't change the fact of how I produce that product on a line that uh, is set up and rigidly fixed with, uh, with fixed changeover costs. You know, how do we connect or how do we differentiate between the fickleness of the consumer and something that adds a legitimately different value? And then how do we use data to, to add that value? Because, you know, what I'm, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that, yes, there's going to be a constant amount of churn, but that's not probably not going to get, uh, garner much market share. You know, you've got a certain group of consumers that are, uh, looking for the new, they're looking for the, they're drawn away by something that uh, that's going to change. Uh, they have a very low barrier of uh, to change. Um, 
but that doesn't really grow your business. That's not going to provide that step change. So, you know, while we talk through these different uh, kind of fluctuations, permutations in marketing, you know, there's got to be something bigger behind the scenes here as well that's going to drive the, the adoption that, uh, that we're talking about. Otherwise, we're going to be 10 years down the road and still having these same conversations. Yeah, so it's let's, interesting. Uh, that I, it's, go ahead, just, Rob. Just real quick, I was just going to say, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, what consumers want is they want to know producers. They want to know who's making their food, right? And they've got this renewed interest. It was happening pre-COVID. It, COVID accelerated it, and, and now we're in the, in the stage of transformation, you know? So consumers want to know producers. Is that new? That's actually an age-old thought. You know, consumers and producers used to sit right next to each other, you know, and you go back only a few decades, and you, hit, you had your butcher on one corner, you had the florist on another, you bought your veggies at the farmer's market, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, for Pete's sake, Alice, Alice knew Sam the butcher at the Brady Bunch, right? So, so that's really nothing new. And oh, by the way, milk was delivered to your house, so home delivery is nothing new either, right? So you, but you go, you know, does that mean where everything is going to be local again? Probably not. But how do produce, how will consumers get to know producers? It's through data, you know, and how do, because they don't necessarily want to know who, you know, they don't necessarily want to know you personally per se, but they do want to know the values you subscribe to. They want to know the practices you, you uh, exercise, the food you produce. How did it get from your farm to my table? You know, did you use good practices and good labor and distribution and so forth? I think that that's the data. Uh, the data issue that, that consumers are most interested in. Let's, yeah. um, in the time I, we have remaining, let's, let's talk about one thing, you know, and Matt, you made me think of this. And, you know, we're talking about consumer trends, consumer fads. One, one thing that I can point to that actually did make it all the way back to the farm and actually did impact the way what and the way people were growing is basically organic. And you know, like five years ago, you could, it, it was such a juggernaut and you know, everything was organic. And if I'm not mistaken, it did, it did go all the way back to the farm and it did impact what people were growing, how they were growing it, getting the organic certification. And now if I talk to, to folks, it seems like organic may have kind of run its course. I don't know. Do you do you agree with that? What can we learn from organic? And and was it was it simply a marketing? Was it so, simply a marketing fad? You know, this is a great way to sell peanut butter. If we say it's organic, you saw the same thing with GMO. You know, I saw things branded as non-GMO that couldn't be GMO to begin with, but anyway, non-GMO, it was a good, it was a good selling point. Anyway, I just, uh, I'm interested because to me, like organics, one thing that maybe we do point to that we say, hey, you know what, this did actually make it all the way back to the farm. What, what have we learned? Have we learned anything from that? And where is the, where is that headed? I, I'll add a statistic that I read, uh, uh, that came out a couple of years ago that said 76% uh, of consumers now believe that the organic certification is nothing more than a marketing gimmick. Uh, now, if you've been a farmer producing organically and you've changed your workflows and your processes and your equipment and, and you've, you've committed to this at a great cost, that is a stab in the heart of the desire to produce organic. And so uh, there, there's a trust issue here, I think, 
that that we're seeing a decline in trust. There's a, a report uh, put out every year by Edelman PR called the Edelman Trust Barometer. It shows a steady decline in trust uh, towards companies, and and that's where I think this transparency drive amongst consumers uh, is pushing for more information. Um, and 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 we're we're seeing that like if if you're an organic farmer, like I said, and you're you're produced you're producing at great cost an organic product, and no one believes it's organic, then why bother? So, this is my two cents. Anything else on that front? Yeah, I, I just real quick on that, Paul. I mean, I think the um, organic was conveyed to be meant to, to it, it was conveying it's better for you, and, and so was natural, so was non-GMO. You know, we can debate whether it's true or not, right? Right. But it all it all kind of conveyed this um, it's better for you. Now, I guess the question I would say on just pure organic is: Does regenerative agriculture really mean organic at scale? You know, is that is that really the next the next piece of this evolution? Because I, if you if you look at the number of times regenerative agriculture is mentioned in large food and beverage manufacturers press releases, their quarterly earnings reports, if you look at the volume that word is used, or those two words I guess they're used now, compared to say a year or three years ago, it's it's off the charts. You know, everyone has a claim, a, an intent around uh, regenerative agriculture. And I think that it conveys not just healthier for you, but it also conveys healthier for the planet and, and, and beyond. So I think that's, a, that's a, maybe the next conversation we have uh, around that. But doesn't at some point all of this come back to, and I'm going to take what you said there, Rob, about uh, producers want to know their suppliers. And I'm going to change that a little bit to, to say producers actually want to trust their suppliers. And isn't this a, in a roundabout way of saying that you know, with uh, the ways that we found in food production to get around federal regulations, you know, the, there's something that, that I've coined the U factor, where when you look at a production line and you just intrinsically say, wow, we can do that. You know, the, there's, there, that leads to a deeper conversation of, yes, data is a way that, uh, that consumers can get to know us, but it's also a way that realistically they can get to trust us uh, or get to trust us again. And I think that there was a trust factor with organic. Um, and then as more people got to understand what organic truly meant, how it was defined from a regulatory standpoint and the ways that people have found to get around the uh, the organic um, conception versus the regulatory meaning of organic, you know, I, I think you've seen an erosion of that trust. And so much of this is just trying to get back to a simple, uh, you know, you knew the butcher down the street and you trusted him because you saw what he was doing to your food. You saw how he was treating you. Um, how do we replicate that from afar now? And I think too, you also see fair trade as another ag trend that works all the way back to the grower. In terms of how they're paid and who they're paid by, uh, you see farm the table is still a very strong movement of finding food that's um, eaten, that's grown within five miles. You know, you see a lot of CEA concepts, uh, being able to grow cruciferous within the area of New York and making New Yorkers feel better about eating lettuce that didn't make its way all the way over from California. I think you could get into some kind of healthy soil certification, as I was referring to earlier about soil density. Some of these things, you know, are going to make an impact and will make a difference. But if it's a marketing trend, you're going to see a lot of other people jump on board. 
uh, where organic in some cases can be healthy, but it's probably a fraction of all the people that use the term because it sells and translates that, you know, in terms of my products um, going to beat this product based on health alone. So I, I don't see the end of these trends so much as what's the next wave of that thing. And 10 to 15% of them will probably be actually better for you, but you know, you're going to see it as a marketing term for everyone else. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. We're coming up on the hour. Um, we've got about two minutes left. Anybody want to throw anything, any last thoughts in um, before we call it a wrap? Yeah, everybody, everyone is good. So listen, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Dan, Eric, Rob, and Matt. Um, this was a terrific conversation. Um, we'll be coming back next. We'll be coming back after the holidays in January with another Cresonia conversation. And we're already putting together our investing in the food is health revolution. We did a very successful forum in Brooklyn in September, and we're looking to reprise it and actually even improve it um, in Miami uh, the end of February. Anyway, I appreciate your time. I think that was a good, lively discussion. And um, Again, thanks for your participation, and, and we'll be back. Happy holidays, everyone. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye.